So my opening question for us this morning is, does our lifestyle give a good representation of Jesus? We're continuing in our series, Seven Churches, Then and Now, and Pastor Gary has done a phenomenal job taking us through Revelation and the seven uh, churches that Jesus sent messages to in those first chapters of Revelation. And today I've got the privilege to talk about uh, the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to look at the church in Sardis and perhaps look in a mirror of ourselves and see if there are any similarities between that church and our church, our nation, our culture. It should come as no surprise that Sardis also is a very historically rich city. And Sardis was located in an area of Asia where it had, a, it had the crossroads of some major uh, roads going into Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And because of these crossroads, it became a very popular and, and uh, a trading center where it became very prosperous and wealthy. And on top of that, the local rivers near Sardis were rich with silver and gold. As a matter of fact, you could just go and you didn't have to do a lot of work. It would be right there at the shore, silver and gold. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why Sardis became one of the very first cities to begin to mint silver and gold coins and perhaps were uh, Sardis was, was perhaps the first city to invent money. Really interesting. Now, Sardis was also positioned in an area which made it very strategically located. Surrounding the city, on three sides were vertical rock walls. On every side except the south, where they constructed a man-made gate, and it made it virtually impenetrable. Okay, In its entire history... Of Sardis. In the entire history, the city was only invaded and captured twice, although it was attacked many, many times. Only twice was it invaded and attacked. At the time of the writing of Revelation chapter 3, what we find is Sardis's best days were sadly behind them. The city had experienced great wealth, but its wealth now became its downfall. One historian summed up ancient Sardis this way. He said, no city in the whole province of Asia had such a splendid history as Sardis. No city in Asia of that time so showed such a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay as Sardis. It's really sad. And it starts to begin to sound to me like another culture we're familiar with today. The entire community of Sardis was experiencing a gradual decay of their economy, their culture, and their morals. So let's read what Jesus, remember Jesus is the one speaking here, what Jesus had to say to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a good reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. 
Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So just briefly, let's talk about what are some things that stand out of this passage immediately as we read it. Well, the things that stand out to me, first of all, is that the majority, not everybody, but the majority of the church in Sardis were hypocrites. Jesus said that their reputation did not reflect their character. He's implying that they built a good reputation at one time, but now they're coasting by on that good name and they're no longer representing Christ well. They're hypocrites. Second thing is that they are spiritually dead. Specifically, what they're doing, the things they are doing, do not honor God. He's talking about actions. He's talking about things they are doing. Look at Ephesians 2.1. Once you were dead, here's a parallel to the idea of dead spiritually. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Colossians 2.13, again, another parallel. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. Jesus is saying the greater portion of the people in Sardis were sinning. They had allowed sin into their lives. He said, I find that your actions don't meet the requirement of my God. Now, I don't believe in works-based salvation, and I don't think you should either. I don't subscribe to the idea that we have to do enough right to be saved. However, Jesus has connected Sardis' spiritual deadness to their actions. We can't get around that. For Jesus, there is a connection to our spiritual life and our actions. And I believe that our actions are the fruit, or we could say the evidence, of the life we have in our spirit. He's saying that their actions aren't right, so they're dead. Thirdly, Jesus tells the church at Sardis that they need to wake up, and they need to repent. They need to wake up, and they need to repent. Remember what I told you about Sardis' history? This is probably the, most, the, the thing I'm most excited to tell you about today. So if you miss everything, here, here it is, right here. Okay? What happened? I said that, that Sardis was captured, invaded, and captured twice. What happened that caused Sardis to be captured and invaded? Both times were attributed to the same factor. A guard on the wall fell asleep at his post. Jesus is calling out to Sardis, the church in Sardis, and the knowledge they would have had for their own history. And he's telling them, don't get too comfortable. 
you may feel like you are guarded well against the enemy. But if you get too comfortable, the enemy can creep into your life. You can be invaded and you can be conquered. Fourth thing Jesus tells Sardis is that they are in jeopardy of judgment upon Jesus' return. They're in jeopardy of judgment. If they don't repent of their sins, they are in danger of judgment when Christ returns. His message for Sardis, unfortunately, was not a positive one. For the most part, for most people, it was a warning and it was a rebuke. Yes, there, there were some whose faith was not compromised. And their names will not be removed from the book of life. But the majority of the church had problems. In my opinion, Jesus warns them to repent. Otherwise, their names will be removed from the book of life. I mean, look at the structure of the message. He's saying, you're dead. Wake up. Repent. If you don't, you'll be unprepared when I return. So what happened? What happened to start? I mean, we see Jesus encourages them to go back to what they heard and believed first. So there was a time when they were representing Christ well, when they were living right, when they were doing the right thing. But how did things go wrong for Sardis? They got comfortable. They fell asleep. They were not on guard. And when we are not awake, the enemy creeps into our lives. You know, I think this speaks really to a misunderstanding of the idea of our salvation. The grace we experience at the moment of our salvation was never meant to be a one-time experience. None of us are sustained by a one-time experience with God. The grace we experienced at salvation needs to be renewed daily. The grace we experienced at salvation needs to be renewed daily. Why? Why does it need to be renewed? Because we leak. We leak. It's true. Have you ever played that game? We play it with the teenagers sometime during summer where you get uh, some teams and one team lines up in a line and you give them a bucket with a bunch of holes in it and there's a container of water at the front of the line and there's an empty container at the back of the line and they, they try to scoop up the water and pass it over their heads and get it to the end and dump the water out uh, into the empty bucket and try to fill it up. You know, it's a fun game for summer. It cools everybody off and, and you know, it's just fun. Uh, you're lucky if at the end of the line there's any water left at all in the bucket, right? Because all of it leaks out. It, it's got holes. It leaks. We leak. Well, here's another illustration. Um, spiritually, we, we run out of gas. I got in my car this morning. The gas light was on. Did I get gas before I came to church? No. I looked at that thing and said, ah, oh, I can make it. Listen, it's not that I don't like getting gas. As a matter of fact, I fill up the gas for my wife, okay? I, it's not that I don't have the money to fill up the gas. I can do that. I've got it budgeted, Right? I am just a chronic, I don't, I don't know. I want to go as far as I can on that tank before I fill up. I feel like I'm getting more out of my money. I, I'm weird, okay? 
Anybody else? Anybody else go as far as you can? Yeah, okay, I think there's a few of it. Matter of fact, when my wife and I were dating, on multiple occasions, this is more than once, I ran out of gas on the date. Let me tell you, there is no recovering from a date where you run out of gas, okay? She was embarrassed. We had to call friends to help us get gas. It was terrible, right? But did I learn my lesson? No, I did it again. And on more than one occasion, was I driving on the highway, and my truck ran out of gas, it died, and I put that sucker into neutral, and I coasted off the highway all the way into a gas station, right up to a pump. Yes! I felt like I cheated the system. I'm like, I got the maximum amount out of that gas tank as I could. I know, I hear you groaning out there. It's not wise. It's not a good thing to do. I'm sharing I mean, it's real life, okay? Spiritually, do we do that? Do we drive with our spiritual gaslight on all the time when we need to stop and be refilled with God's grace? 2 Corinthians 4.16 Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed daily. This is the ideal situation, okay? We all, we all have bodies that are dying, but the idea of salvation is not a one-time experience. It's a daily choice to follow Jesus. It's being renewed daily. This is the path we walk with with Jesus. If we want to walk in, in white, if we want to walk in victory, as Jesus said, if we want to have our name written in the book of life, I took a couple minutes and I wrote something, and admittedly it's a little cheesy, but I want to help you remember, okay? If you want to be in the book, you got to let Jesus in every nook. Okay, I know, but I'm hoping you're going to remember this. If you want to be in the book, you got to let Jesus in every nook. If we want our names in the book of life, we need to allow Jesus to touch every area of our lives. No area should be off limits to Jesus. If you want to be in the book, you've got to allow Jesus in every nook. Jesus needs to have the master key. He needs to have the administrator password. He needs to have the all access pass to your life. No door is shut. Nothing is off limits. If you want to be in the book, you've got to allow Jesus in every nook. We've got to choose to follow Jesus every day and turn from our sinful ways. How do we do it? Well, as I read Revelations 3, 1 through 6, I also read this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, which I believe is a parallel passage talking about exactly what we're talking about here. Stick with me on this. I, I, it gets me. I, hopefully it'll get you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates at salvation and perfects our faith every day. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. 
And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who's never disciplined by its father? Unfortunately, we have. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all his children, it means that you're illegitimate and you're not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline's enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fail but become strong. It's powerful. And I identify with this passage both as a father and a son. I remember as a son and I did not enjoy being disciplined. I I did not want my mistakes to be pointed out. I didn't want to have to be corrected. I wished we could just forget about it and move on and never have to talk about it, never have to think about it. I wish I could just live as if I was perfect. I also remember, I know right now as a father, and how I see the unlimited potential inside my kids. When character issues rise up, I know those things are going to limit them in the future. I know they're only going to hurt them. So I correct them because I want the best for them. If we want to be God's kids, we can't run from his discipline. Nobody likes to have their sins and struggles pointed out and revealed to them. Nobody does. If you do, You're crazy, okay? We all wish they would just go away and Jesus could make us perfect at salvation and we just wouldn't have to worry about that anymore. At the very least, we could just act like we were perfect. We could pretend like we were perfect. But church, there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. But thank God that Jesus helps us pay that cost. Now, this isn't for everybody. Now, understand what I'm saying. This is for everybody, but not everybody's going to respond to this. Not everybody's willing to pay the cost. You have to want this. You've got you've to want it. You've, it takes a full commitment. You can't, you can't approach this with any half measures. Somebody once said, no half measures. Some things can't be cut in half. You can't half love someone. You can't half betray. You can't half lie. You can't half love Jesus. You're either all in or you're not. And so we've got to become aware of the sin that is still present in our lives 
And through the grace of God, we've got to work to eradicate it. You might ask, Pastor Adam, how do I know what sin I need to work on in my life? How do I know? I'm going to give you three ways today. Three ways to identify the sin that is still present in your life or that maybe has crept in your life. And I'll tell you the truth, if we would all just do the first one, we would be so much better off. I'm going to give you three, but I'm telling you, the first one is probably the most impactful. Number one, direct Holy Spirit conviction. When the Holy Spirit tells you not to do something, don't do it. I know this is basic. This is so basic, Pastor Adam. This is Christianity 101. But how many times do we get drawn away by our culture or our friends or our family or our own sinful nature and we do things that we shouldn't do? All of us. Me. Even Paul. Romans 7, 14. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I really don't understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Paul gets it. I get it. We all know it. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, and we need to follow that conviction even when it's hard. If we could all just work on following the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives, after all, he is the convictor of sin. That's his job. He is the one that convicts us of our sin. And if we would just listen to that conviction and let it transform our habits and our actions, how much more like Jesus would we be? You know, there's a saying that has changed its meaning over the years. And I always find these sayings to be fascinating. And the saying is, follow your heart. Follow your heart, you know, it'll always, you know, Whatever the end of it, it changes. It'll, it'll never steer you wrong. It'll always take you to the right. Follow your heart is what people say. Follow your heart. And what people are saying today when they say follow your heart is do what you desire. If you want to be with that person, follow your heart. If you want to do that thing, if you want to get that car, if you want to follow your heart. Do what you desire. And we know that's not great advice because we have a sinful nature and we have wicked desires. And we know that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Only God knows how, how terrible it is. So following your heart in that context is not good advice. Now what it used to mean, what the idea of follow your heart used to mean was follow your conscience. Do the right thing. And as Christians, the idea of a, con- a conscience is derived from the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one that speaks to us. He tells us what is right and what is wrong. God's word is written on our heart and the Holy Spirit brings that alive in us. And so if we were to use it, the idea of follow your heart in its original context, that's good advice. If we would all just listen to the Holy Spirit, as I said, this is the one that would immediately change our lives the most. We would stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit's voice in our life and do what he says. But for those of us who want hard mode, you want to go hard mode in your life, another way to become aware of the sin in your life is through the Holy Spirit's conviction through the word of God. 
This is when you come to church on a weekend and you hear the word of God preached and the Holy Spirit is just touching your heart and you know you're being called out. It was as if the pastor talked to all your family and knew your struggles and he's preaching right to you, but he didn't, I can assure you. And the Holy Spirit is just saying, this is the thing we need to work on. Holy Spirit's conviction through God's word. It's also when you read your Bible during your personal devotion time. The book of James, James tells us that the word of God is like a mirror. And what good is it if we look at ourselves in the mirror and we walk away and we forget what we look like? In other words, what, is, what good is it if we read the word of God, maybe you read the whole Bible in a year, but you don't become more like Jesus? What good is it? It's not. It's no good. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to reveal to us the sin that's still present in our life. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts us from fellow believers. Now, I love the way God designed his church, but sometimes I don't like the way God designed his church because fellow believers are supposed to be able to lovingly and humbly, but they are supposed to be able to reveal the blind spots in our lives. Now, the first two to me, that's a little easier. God's, the Holy Spirit speaking to me, God's word. God's perfect. He can tell me where I'm wrong. But you guys, fellow believers, we're imperfect. And they're gonna, somebody's going to tell me where I'm falling short. Who do you think you are? You need to go get the plank out of your own eye. Well, yeah. But that doesn't discount the idea that we are a team designed to help one another get those planks out. And once the planks are out, then we can start working on the dust. This is best um, performed in life groups. If you're not in a life group, you need to be in a life group, an area where you meet on a regular basis. You're sharing your life. You're sharing your heart. You're sharing your actions, your motives, your thoughts, And you're giving people permission to say, what does Jesus think about this? Hey, Adam, we need to work on this. Giving people that permission. It's for our benefit. No discipline is good at the time, but it's for our benefit. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to use all these areas to make us aware of the sin that is still present in our lives. We need to... Because Jesus is coming back. And we do not want to be on the judgment side of his return. One-time prayer is not enough to ensure salvation. Real faith in Christ is preceded and followed by repentance to be like Jesus. It is an ongoing process. One prayer is not enough. Jesus taught in Matthew 7, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter. Jesus warned the Pharisees in Matthew 15, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas and commandments from God. These are hard things. But God help us if we examine ourselves and we find 
that our faith is dead. That the enemy has creeped in. God help us if we've become like the church in Sardis. God help us if we examine our lives and we find that we're like the Pharisees. Help us if we're like one of the ones that cry out, Lord, Lord. Sometimes these things are so scary, we don't even want to look at it. We don't even want to examine ourselves. We just want to go on pretending like everything's good. But if you can find the courage to look, I'm going to tell you it's not too late. Because there is hope when we repent. If we want to be in the book, we've got to let Jesus in every nook. We've got to choose to follow Jesus every day and turn from our sinful ways. You may say, Pastor Adam, if you caught a glimpse of what I really look like on the inside, you wouldn't know where to start because I don't. You might say, Pastor Adam, there's so much going on. I feel hopeless. I want to give you a piece of advice. This may seem so big that you don't know where to start. So this week, I encourage you to change one thing. Stop doing one thing that dishonors God. Whatever it is. If you're lying, stealing, you're cheating, greed, gossip, sexual immorality, whatever. Work to stop one thing that dishonors God. If you fail, it's okay. Repent. Then make it right. If you lied, go tell the truth. If you stole, give it back. Repent and then make it right. Stop doing things that make you weak. Make an active effort to grow in that area. Don't be passive about it. Well, you know, I'm working on it. No, write some note cards with scripture verses. Put reminders on your phone. Talk to people to keep you accountable. Work on it. Be active. Work on it. Master it. Don't let it master you. And then once you do master it, let the Holy Spirit guide you to the next thing. Start working on that. Work to become more like Jesus. A little bit every single day. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to do it right. There was only one perfect person, and that was Jesus. If we had the ability to be perfect, we wouldn't need a Savior. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we work on it. We should know that the church is filled with imperfect people. We're all imperfect. But the church should be filled with people who are getting better at being like Jesus. How do you know if this message is for you? Are you more like Jesus today than you were last year? I don't know. Are you more like Jesus today than you were last month, last week? Are you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday? Here's a hard question. When was the last time you heard God point out an era in your life that didn't honor him? When was the last time you did something about it? Sometimes we can, we hear God, the Holy Spirit convicts us and we mess up and we mess up again and eventually we just kind of tune out 
It's not that he's not speaking to us anymore. It's just we've tuned it out. If you're unsure about these questions, this might be for you. Let me tell you, it's for me. We're all in this together. I just happen to be the one God appointed to bring this message to you. But we all are called to be more like Jesus. And we all still have sin in our lives that needs to come under the grace of God. We all need to master the sin and not let it be our master. As you look in, you ask the scary question, is my faith dead? Are my spiritual muscles atrophied? If you're scared of the answer, I want to remind you that there's hope. Let's wake up to our current situation. Let's strengthen what little faith we have left. Let's repent and be more like Jesus.